Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. Just a quick disclaimer. Uh, my audio track on this podcast episode got messed up. But this episode, of course, like all of our other episodes, was just too good to discard. So instead, I had to re-record my audio track. And then Patrick, our producer, did his magic, his unexplainable magic, at least to me. But anyway, still, if it sounds a little bit odd to you, we apologize. And now you know why. But uh, I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. This is Eugene Rapkin, and I'm here with the author Paul Gorman, who recently wrote a biography of Malcolm McLaren. Malcolm McLaren is this cultural figure that's a bit hard to define, but who's most famous for being the manager, or as he would say, the mismanager of the Sex Pistols, the seminal punk band, the, the band that really put punk rock on a cultural map. Uh, on a whole new level. But McLaren has done many other things, not only in music, but in fashion as well. And we're going to talk about all of these things. And Paul, thank you for being with us. Oh, it's great to be here. Good to talk to you, Eugene. So, Paul, our audience is probably split between Gen X and Millennials, and maybe a lot of people have heard of McLaren, but some probably will say, who? So my first question to you, on behalf of our audience, uh, why is McLaren important now? Uh, you know, he's done a lot of his best work, arguably the or most important work, most well-known work in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, and so what made you decide to write this book and publish it in 2020? Well, I think you touched on one of the reasons I put the book together in your introduction in the He's quite difficult to locate, even if you know just a little about him, something about him. That doesn't tell the whole story. And so one of the reasons for the book was that I wanted to cover all that he did. And then maybe by the end of it, myself, let alone the reader, could find out exactly what he was up to. And I think one of the things he was up to, which is probably most relevant to today and your listeners, is that he was interested in blurring the boundaries between expression. So here was a person who had been a radical, politically radical art student in the 60s and very active in protest movements, who became a fashion designer and a boutique operator. And then he started managing music bands. And so he managed the New York Dolls and really created the Sex Pistols and kind of came up with this idea of the punk movement as a locus for protest and expression by young people. And he continued to do that throughout his life. He made films, he produced advertising. And I think that we can see that today in the way we operate across, particularly across social networks, is that, you know, you see a model who's a DJ, you see a fashion designer who's interested in architecture or interiors. Now, it was really McLaren who set that idea loose and put it on a world stage. And I think that, you know, what we get up to today, even if we haven't heard of him, owes something to those explorations and adventures that he had all those years ago. Yeah, I totally agree here. And as I was reading your book, first thing that popped into my head, what a postmodernist figure McLaren was and 
So we live in a thoroughly postmodernist cultural world where so much new has been done and it's so hard to create something genuinely new on its own. Uh -huh. So you kind of end up mixing and matching existing cultural artifacts. And you're absolutely right in saying that McLaren jump started that. And part of it is because, and we'll get to the situation this moment later, but he must have read Gideborg's book, The Society of the Spectacle, of the Society of the Spectacle, excuse me, and which everyone should read. And he would have known that our culture is 100% visual and that the look has become so important to everyone and everything in it. And knowing how to manipulate the media becomes his biggest skill. Yeah. I mean, this was really his project. I mean, he wasn't a dilettante, even though some people may have seen him as such. He heavily, I think my book shows this, and maybe you came across it in my book, but he heavily researched areas that he was investigating. In. And so when he died 10 years ago, and I was at the funeral, I came across this guy, Robin Scott, who'd uh, studied with him at Croydon Art College, south of London, in the late 60s. And Robin later became a musician in his own right and had that international hit with pop music, M-U-Z-I-K, as M, this mysterious figure. So Robin told me that uh, McLaren, while he was at art school, was constantly buzzing between art history classes as well as making art. At that point, he was painting and making sculptures and investigating environmental installations. So when you get to 1971, when he finally leaves his last art school, he was, at, I think, more than eight. I could locate eight, but he was constantly changing his surname. He was moving between the boroughs in London. So at that time, one didn't check on the other. So you could study fine art of one and then performance of another. And, you know, you could move between them and, you know, have a great time on the uh, on the welfare state and investigate your practice. Anyway, after eight years, he left his final art school and he set up this boutique called Let It Rock, which was a kind of throwback to 50s Britain, the teddy boys of 50s Britain and their their fashions and their styles, which were, which were by then totally anachronistic. Everyone was wearing flares and boutiques of the King's Road where he launched his store were selling velvet suits and Granny Takes a Trip, boots and that kind of stuff, that kind of pre-glam stuff. He was already being postmodern in his practice in 1971 about an era which had existed 15 years before maybe. So already, and I think postmodernism, I think it came out of architecture in the 60s and it really began to take uh, effect across the rest of culture and across the rest of disciplines in the early 70s. And here is somebody who's instinctively, it's, it's unfair to say instinctively because I've just said he was kind of researching areas of expression, but he was surfing that zeitgeist and becoming a postmodernist and expressing himself as such. And in fact, if you look at fashion ever since then, we've kind of had waves of invention and innovation but much more innovation on old forms that they're compiled again and again in new ways. And that's a very postmodern practice. I interviewed Peter Saville for my book about the graphic designer Barney Bubbles. Uh, Peter Saville, who's the great British uh, designer, said that postmodern practice was really the past, the present, and the possible. And that's really 
I think where we're at in terms of fashion practice these days, and it's really something that McLaren was pioneering right from that first store, which he called Let It Rock in 1971. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, it's great stuff. Okay. All right. I'm getting ahead of But you touched upon something I find most appealing about McLaren. Here's this Jewish boy in post-war London from a working class family just in his own little ghettoized world, but he's so driven by passion and curiosity yeah. that it just trumps and transcends everything else. Well, I think that he he comes out of an immigrant experience, and immigrants are, by, by definition, displaced people. And so even though he was a fourth-generation Londoner, his great-great-grandparents had come over. They were Sephardic Jews from the Iberian Peninsula who arrived in London via the Diamond Ateliers of Amsterdam. He grew up in this area in northeast London called Stoke Newington, which was really a Jewish enclave, predominantly Jewish enclave. And so, so you know, it's a hip place. Uh, Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth lives there. He has a market stall. A record stall every week in the very hipster market there. But um, at the time, it was for the well-to-do, actually. They were the working-class Jews who'd moved up the hill, as it were, from the deep east end of Bethnal Green and Stepney. And his his grandparents, uh, his grandfather was a diamond dealer. They'd made some money, but they weren't accepted within British society. These were still outsiders. And he was brought up very much to feel like an outsider. Um uh, as many children of the diaspora do. And I think it gave him, as it gives many other immigrants, a skewed and an interesting take on the society he was presented with. He was never going to accept the de rigueur thinking, particularly of bland Britain in, and repressed Britain as well in the post-war period. Remember, he was born in 1946, so within nine months of the end of the Second World War. And he came of age in the late 50s and early 60s when all the hierarchies were breaking down in Britain. And that was mainly through popular culture. You know, think of the Beatles and the Stones and the working class photographers like David Bailey. He was part of that generation who were eager to dismantle the prevailing verities. Yeah, and he has a very fraught relationship with his mother and a very close and how should I put it, strange relationship with his grandmother, yeah. who is this absolutely towering figure in his early life. And he repeats her famous refrain, mm -hmm. kind of becomes his motto, right? To be bad is good because to be good is boring. Yeah. And who wants to be boring? Yeah. And I can think of exactly zero other Jewish grandmothers <laughs> who would say that. So that's quite an achievement. She but, seems quite a character. But she did fulfill that kind of Jewish matriarchal figure, though, didn't she, Eugene? You know, if you think of the, uh, the Jewish family set up, and particularly the immigrant uh, family set up as well, she fulfilled that figure of the all-powerful uh, matriarch. But um, because his father left home, who's a Gentile, and never really got on with the family and divorced his wife after five, six years. Uh, his father left home when McLaren was 22 months old. His mother was flighty. She was serially having affairs and flings with people, sometimes rich Jewish figures in London society. Um, and so she didn't really, wasn't really interested in McLaren or his slightly older brother. And so McLaren in particular, because he had these auburn locks, this long hair, which kind of reflected his Sephardic 
background and maybe a connection to Portuguese nobility. That's some kind of fantasy that existed there. He was taken up by the grandmother and spoiled. And so an interesting thing about his psychology or his psychological makeup is that he was at once rejected by his parents, one of whom removed himself from his life for 40 odd years and at the same time indulged and explored exploited and spoiled by this grandmother who was this very dramatic figure i think you recognize her as a kind of jewish grandmother as well you know she was forever being quite shocking but as you say i don't think there are many grandmothers who would go as far to be described by him later on as the first sex pistol yeah, that's a Guinness Book of Record entry for sure. <laughs> so as he's growing up and his family keeps moving up in the world, as much as a Jewish family could at the time, of course, he's not an entering London's high society. Yeah. Um, do you feel that might be part of his antagonism as he embarks on this spectacular series of failings out of various art schools? Yeah, I think I think so. That there's that kind of revenge on society in a way, because if you're excluded. You want to you, well, either you accept it, which is what most people do. But, you know, given this inculcation by his grandmother, he wanted to kick the doors down. Um, and so his uh, mother married um, again uh, an observant Jew, Martin Levy, who changed his name to Martin Edwards, as was the style at the time in post-war Britain. A, a lot of Jews adopted Anglophone names. But uh, he was an observant Jew nonetheless. And they were steeped in the rag trade. They ran a kind of French fashion knockoff women's wear factory in the East End. And his grandfather had been a master tailor. So simultaneously, you've got this quite troublemaking youth who's investigating art practice at art school, who's, as I say, steeped in the rag trade and tailoring. And so it's no surprise that within a few years, he should see that as an outlet. And I think there's another interesting thing is that, you know, if we look at the recent history of fashion around the world, so many practitioners, so many designers come from an art directed or art school background, don't they? You know, they it's not seen as any... Yeah, any problem for them to cross over. He was one of the first to come out of a fine art background and then apply what he'd learned there in terms of contemporary art to, to, to street fashion, in fact. And to be sure, I love that. First of all, he knew if we talk about the look, we're inevitably going to talk about fashion. And on the other side, he had all these rag trade connections due to his family business. And it made me think that the same thing was happening in New York. You know, talk about someone like Ralph Lauren, whose real name is Ralph Lifshitz. Um, you know, he came out of a similar milieu as well. I mean, their parents were in the schmata business and That's they right. turned that into a fashion business. Sure. Ralph Lifshitz was selling ties, right? In the 50s, I interviewed somebody who was a buyer at one of the Ivy League stores in New York, and that's when he first met him, you know. So they come out of that you know, it, it go into the family trade in a way. But what they do, I mean, I, I think that maybe Ralph Lauren is, is quite comparable to McLaren. It's surprising to think that, but I think he is probably in some lights as radical as McLaren in that he took on the American dream and reflected it through this prism of being an outsider. That's for another conversation. But McLaren absorbed the family business 
but at once rejected it in the way that he went about designing clothes and shops. He he really addressed it with the mind of an artist. And so the idea was that his clothing were basically multiples. You know, they were objects to be appreciated visually rather than to just be worn. You know, you've moved from a culture of necessity, as we had in Britain at that time, into a culture of desire. And he understood the whole aspirational aspects to fashion and the ways in which if you dressed as a teddy boy in 1971 while everyone else was wearing desert boots or platform shoes or whatever, you were making a statement about not only yourself, but about the society around you. He understood, you know, the signs and signifiers. This is all de rigueur for fashion designers today, and it's taught on fashion courses. He was really the first one to make it explicit, I believe. So let's talk about him starting his first store, Let It Rock, at 430 Kings Road in Chelsea, in London. Uh, it's such a wonderful story, so mm -hmm. I'd love for you to tell it in your own words. Well, there was this tale that he told. One of the things about McLaren is that he was a fabulist. Whether he was a liar or not, somebody in my book says he was the biggest liar I ever met. But when you study his stories, as I had to, and kind of unpick them, there is so much truth to them, and there are so many extraordinary elements to them. So he told this story about which he always called the boy in the blue lame suit, uh, which he, he wrote as a, a, a long-form long piece for The New Yorker in the 90s. But having left art school, he had a crisis, as I think many young people did at the end of the 60s, early 70s. You know, the 60s dream had curdled. Not that he was ever a hippie, but, you know, the ideas of revolution had uh, had been turned over by what we understand as corporatization and, and being co-opted. He had a crisis. It expressed itself in a couple of ways. He shoplifted a, a roll of linoleum <laughs> from a hardware store for which he was promptly arrested and fines, I think, £10 or something, a minor event. And he also painted the interior of the flat he shared with his girlfriend, the school teacher, then school teacher, Vivian Westwood. He painted the interior entirely black. And so one of his friends said he was like a bird, a homing pigeon circling for his home. He was lost after eight years at art school. And then suddenly he comes upon this idea of recasting those dead 50s looks in a new way by being absolutely authentic about them. And so in another way, he's one of the first people to look at what we now know as vintage. He gets dead stock clothes. He has his girlfriend, Vivian Westwood, who's incredibly adept with a sewing machine to repair them, maybe make new ones. And she makes him a blue lame suit, like a one that would be worn by Elvis Presley. And he gets the bus to the King's Road from his home in South London. And he walks down the King's Road as this kind of peacock. He called himself, like he looked like a traffic light and expecting to have an encounter. This is something the situationists who you've mentioned have talked about. It's the derive. You drift around the city and you're either repelled or attracted to what you encounter. He gets to the end of the King's Road, which is two and a half miles long. This is in the autumn of 1971. It's really raining. And this guy comes out of this shop, who's a New Yorker, it's from Brooklyn, actually. And he's got a quiff, a teddy boy haircut. And he says, man, you look fantastic. 
what what's the deal you know it's only a new yorker who would do that in london we don't talk to each other at all you know this guy's walking around looking like the most outrageous person you know ever and nobody turns a blind eye to him it's like you know forget it but this new yorker says hey come over here um what's the deal why are you wearing it? and so mclaren said you know, I've collected all these 50s records. I've got a bunch of 50s clothes. I'd like to sell them somewhere. And this guy said, well, you can sell them in the back of this shop, which is then called Paradise Garage, uh, which have been selling kind of retro 50s American looks. And so um, after a few days of setting up there and selling these records and radiograms and these clothes, these teddy boy jackets, this guy disappears. McLaren takes over the shop. The manager disappears. He goes off and I, I tracked him down. He's now a, a big property dealer in New York. I tracked him down. Um, and uh, he went off to Spain for a while and then just headed back home. Left the shop empty. The landlords were a bit annoyed, but they sorted that out. And uh, McLaren reestablished the shop in this new incarnation, Let It Rock. And there's something kind of magical about that story that, and there's a quite often a magic around McLaren that you think, well, that didn't happen that way. That can't have happened. That can't be true. But it did. And, you know, it's from that store. If you look at subsequently what he did with that 400 square foot space, which was visited by everybody from Andy Warhol to obviously Sid Vicious, who worked there, everybody and anybody in the culture passed through that portal in the ensuing 13 years that he operated it with Vivian Westwood. I want to go on a bit of a tangent that you bring up. American culture and American experts in London have quite an influence on McLaren. You describe quite a few encounters with American experts uh, in your book. I found that quite fascinating. Yeah, I, th I think you, you have to remember that for us, kind of skinny, <laughs> pale, uh, austerity-starved, you know, post-war kids. America was the was the promised land, you know, uh, and you know there was uh, there was so much that was more attractive from the cars to the people, the men and women, to the film stars. There was something that had that glamour, which appealed to you know, McLaren was by no means. Um, you know, uh, ignoring it all the time. And so he does gravitate to Americans. You're quite right. Roberta Bailey, the photographer who's working in the local vegan restaurant, he gets talking to her. He has an affair with uh, a, a, a girl from New Jersey whose father is a clothing retailer who works in his shop, Addy Isman. There are lots of them who crop up, particularly New Yorkers as well, because I think he thought a bit like a New Yorker as well. He was one of those people that wasn't a typical Londoner in many ways, though of course he adopted a Cockney wide boy persona when it suited him. But yeah, you're right. He was attracted to Americans because they offered potential beyond what he always called this muddy hole called England. Yeah, because you see in him, it's not just a rebellious streak, but a vision of possibility that in the culture he is in is kind of frowned upon. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he called his, so his shop. It, it went through a couple of incarnations after Let It Rock. Well, actually, one more. And then the third incarnation, he called it Sex, just S-E-X. And he erected the sign in six-foot-high vinyl lettering outside on the frontage in this quite nondescript 
terrace of shops in the King's Road. Now, you don't do that without actually being quite an aggressive, hostile person. You know, you really want to shock people. And of course, he always said that he knew that the way to, because as I say, the 60s revolution, peace and love had failed. Um, the political revolution, whether we had the angry brigades here, we had various political movements, they'd really failed. And he'd struck upon this idea, which was brought up by the German philosopher Wilhelm Reich, who suggests that in his book, The Roots of Fascism, suggests that fascism really lies in sexual repression. This was one of his theories. And it was a big 60s theory. It's very popular. It came, came about in the 30s. And he said, the only way to, McLaren said, the only way to wind up the British, and particularly the English, because they're not Celts, they're not passionate Irish, Scots, or Welsh, you know, they're very white bred English people, yeomans, said the only way to wind them up is to push sex into their faces, you know, foreground it. That's a very hostile thing to do, isn't it? And quite correct, because you have to be prepared for the society to crack down on you in one way or another. Well, somebody, uh, somebody who knew him quite well, Peter Culshaw, who later ran, um, who, who worked with him on various uh, exploits, he said that the absence of a father figure, and this may, may be paperback psychology, but it, it figures to me. He said, you know, the absence of the father figure in McLaren's life meant that he was constantly looking kind of to get his bottom smacked. He was constantly looking for that confrontation with Big Daddy, the authorities. And, you know, he certainly achieved it. So he establishes Leather Rock with Vivian Westwood and he starts selling Teddy costumes. So now I'd like you to explain to our American listeners who the hell are the Teddy Boys, which I guess we could say is the first English youth subculture. Yeah, they're a very interesting um, cult. They were really the first widespread national youth cult. This is really when teenage as a demographic is being established. So kids on both sides of the Atlantic, your side of the Atlantic much more than ours, had uh, some money in their pockets and they wanted to spend it. And so they begin to be targeted by companies who isolate them as a market to sell to. You know, the most obvious example is through music, you know. So uh, post Elvis or... Uh, in the early to mid-50s, the American music that's coming in begins to be emulated by British stars. You know, we start to have charts. There are music papers which are booming. And so McLaren always said, and I think we all agree, that every youth movement has to have a look. You know, popular music doesn't really work unless there is a great look attached. He always talked about the look of music and the sound of fashion, those two being inextricably intertwined. And so the Teddy Boys come out of this uh, wash of the early 50s by adopting this fad in Savile Row, which is our tailoring row in London, uh, tailoring street in London. There'd been a brief fad in 1949 for the Edwardian look. This look back to the period when uh, King Edward VII was on the throne uh, in the post-Victorian period of the early 20th century. This is the last time we really had an empire. This is before it all really crumbled, before the First World War. And the Edwardian look were high-cut, guardsman-cut trousers, so tapered at the bottom, a long rise, very high-cut, and a long draped jacket, which kind of almost went down to the knees. Um, the Teddy Boys liked a fingertip drape, 
which meant that if they stood with their arms outstretched beside them, the coat ended at the bottom of their fingertips. So it was long. It was kind of a take on the zoot suits that were going on. But the trousers were tight. You wore them with a, a fancy waistcoat, brocade waistcoat, and thick-soled shoes called brothel creepers, which had been introduced in 1949 as well. You see, it's all coming together. They grew their hair long because they didn't have to join the army anymore, and this was a way of cocking a snooker society. They greased it back in the style of Elvis or James Dean, and they were mainly working-class youths who were adopting this kind of highfalutin style, but they made it a look which was kind of thuggish and threatening. They carried koshes. They carried weapons. You wouldn't want to bump into a team of teddy boys from the Elephant and Castle on a dark night. They were um, they had some unpleasant characteristics about them, and it was very brutish. They wore bootlace ties. There were references to Americana throughout it, gambler's ties, you know, um, riverboat guys' waistcoats, uh, all of that stuff. But it was a very, very English look, and it really took over the country for the, basically the first half of the 50s. The writer Nick Cohen says that Teddy Boy was over by 1956. But it, everything has changed since then because you then were set in train this kind of action-reaction cycle that we had in Britain ever since. So after the Teddy Boys, you had the rockers who were kind of greasers of their age. They rode motorbikes. They listened to really hard rock and roll. Uh, then you had the mods, then you had the skinheads, then you had the hippies, then you had the punks. We're very good at that sort of thing of accelerating these uh, uh, successive youth cults. But really, it all goes back to the Teds. And so that was the first incarnation of his in Westwood's store. Mm -hmm. But he fairly quickly gets sick of it and changes everything and reincarnates it as too fast to live, too young to die. Mm-hmm. And so that's really a tribute to those guys who supplanted the Teddy Boys. And they were mainly guys. There were some girls as well. They were, they were interested in motorbikes as their premium mode of transport. And with that came leathers. And so um, McLaren was beginning to be interested in fabric as a means of subversion. I know that sounds highfalutin, but what he's really talking about is that Wearing leathers makes a statement again about yourself. And there's also a kind of sexualized, fetishized element to, to leather. Um, and this was uh, something that he would expand upon within uh, 18 months or so. I think another thing you have to understand about McLaren was that he wasn't a regular fashion designer or even a fashion retailer in that once he'd explored an idea, he was, became very bored of it and moved on. And so Let It Rock was actually quite a popular shop. Uh, it was in Vogue. It was in all the main papers. It was it sold out of its collections uh, very quickly. And he soon turned it into, as you say, Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die, which was a tribute to the rockers. And then that lasted about a year before he started to wonder about that business, about how to confront society properly. He was pissed off that rock bands were wearing his clothes without understanding that he had a subversive intent behind them. For him, it was becoming a bit too much like costume or even, dare I say, fashion 
and he was always decidedly anti-fashion. Right. This cat and mouse game he's playing where he's so adamant to not want commercial success in 2020, that must seem so wild when yeah, like, our I, entire insane, culture right? has become about selling out as fast as humanely possible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are stories that he would not let the people from Vogue, the editors from Vogue, into the shop. And Michael Roberts told me that uh, the great, you know, uh, with Vanity Fair now these days, but he was a very pioneering stylist and photographer in Britain at the time. He was literally thrown out of McLaren and Westwood shop because he worked for Vogue. And so I think that there was this knowledge and understanding that the more you did that, the more attractive what you were selling became to those people in fashion who couldn't quite understand it. And they couldn't dismiss it because it was commercially successful. Well, we, yeah, we kind of saw that a couple of years ago with Vetman, right, who made the point of making their clothes inaccessible. And the way the fashion press took that bait was amazing to me. Like articles in Vogue about fashion revolution. Right. The entire fashion press, like completely missing out on the irony of what Vetman were doing. Yes. And again, it goes back to this idea that is very much that today of not giving the people what they want and not making them want it even more. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, it's proven by, you know, David Bowie's manager not making him available and, you know, before Ziggy Stardust really hit. And so suddenly you create a mystique. It's kind of a Barnum, but, you know, it's an old fashioned showmanship technique. And I think that you struck on something there when you mentioned irony, because a lot of what McLaren got up to has to be viewed through the prism of humor. He was really taking the mickey, as we say in England. He was kind of taking the piss out of these fashionistas who were flooding into his store and, you know, maybe he was kicking them out or wouldn't let them show. And so when he created uh, Sex, which came after um, the uh, Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die incarnation at 430 Kings Road, this had a very foreboding frontage, not only those letters in vinyl, but it had written underneath on the lintel Craft must have clothes, but truth loves to go naked, <laughs> which is kind of an anti way of selling clothes, isn't it? Because you're saying if you're coming in here, you're crafty, you're not truthful. Right, right. But I also feel like he was trying to push his own designs as far as possible, making them as repulsive. And I don't mean ugly. Yeah. Uh, just inaccessible, you know, hard to understand to the public as possible. And it's almost like, God damn it, I'm still successful despite everything. He says that several times in his career. You know, he's like, I, I just want to close this down. When he closed down, let it rock too fast to live, to change it into sex. Vivian Westwood was furious, absolutely furious. She said, what are you doing? We're, we're really successful here. And so there was that uh, period when the, you would go into the shop and buy a T-shirt which would have, you know, a really striking image on it, a really fantastic artwork but it would be quite provocative to start with. And he would ask you, or the assistant Jordan, who became this kind of Warholian superstar figure, uh, would say, where do you want the tears in this T-shirt? We can tear it. We can, we can stub cigarettes out on it. We can make it use, look like a used dish rag, but we'll still charge you quite a lot of money for it. So there is that kind of 
defiance and invitation as well. And there's an element of that that goes through. I've looked at British boutique culture quite a bit. There's an element of that that there's a strain of that throughout British the the heyday of British boutique culture. It's a kind of challenge. Dare you wear these clothes? And those clothes weren't cheap. No. No, they weren't, they weren't hugely expensive, but for street fashion at the time, people weren't expecting to pay. You know, that's the reason a lot of rock stars and pop stars wore the clothes is because they could pay with their record company advances. But still, there were a growing number of younger people who were becoming interested in this shop because the clothes really suited that kind of I guess it's the teenage disgruntlement that McLaren had always harbored within himself ever since he was that spoiled, as we said, and rejected child in the 60s. It kind of perfectly expressed that desire to upset the bourgeoisie and your parents and create generation gaps and, you know, start movements. Uh, this is why as the 70s progressed and the really, really the reason why the sex, various members of the Sex Pistols gravitated there is because it became an important place for pop cultural change. Yeah, personally, it's something that I miss in our cultural landscape. Yeah. Where, like I said, the rush to sell out and belong to the club is absolutely the opposite of what McLaren was doing. Yeah, because he was viewing it as an artist and so he kept moving. And I think, you know, you read the book and you'll see that he's constantly moving, isn't he? He's constantly coming up with ideas and concepts because really in one way we can understand him as a conceptualist. But And if they don't work, fine, he moves on. And if they do work, he doesn't give them too long. They don't. I don't believe they get overcooked because he's got that rapid moving uh, brain which is – he becomes bored by stuff very easily, which I think is a, a sign of a, a lot of very interesting uh, creative types. One of the really important things I think you do in your book is correcting the record on McLaren's contribution uh, in designing the clothes. You consistently point out how it was McLaren, actually, who was responsible for designs that are so often attributed to Westwood. But initially, it was McLaren's ideas yeah. and Westwood's execution of these ideas. Yeah, that, that was an impulse behind it because I'd seen what Westwood and her camp had done uh, ever since uh, they split their personal relationship in the early 80s was to say, well, Malcolm was just about the music. You know, I handled the fashion. Now, this isn't true. This was a 50-50 relationship. Uh, as expressed in the partnership document, which he had drawn up in 1973. And so there is that thing that, you know, without, without him, she would not have been the designer that she became. And that's not just because he gave her a head and encouraged her, which he, which he did to a lot of people. He was a very encouraging person. He was very generous, uh, I think, a lot of the time. But also because... She sparked off his ideas, but also his technical know-how. You'll notice in the book, maybe Simon Withers, who was their assistant on the Witches Collection, which I uh, don't know if your listeners know, but was their last but one collection, Viv Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren's last but one collection in 1983, uh, which was extraordinary in the shapes and the articulation of the clothing. 
um, and I think stands up today uh, along with the greatest fashion collections of the 20th century, certainly the 20th century. Um, but Simon Withers, who worked on that, talks about how McLaren was highly involved in not just the editing, but the suggestion and the design of those of those clothing, suggesting Keith Haring that they appropriate, they use Keith Haring and they commissioned him to provide artworks on these jersey clothing, which he'd got from the you know the street kids and rap artists of the Bronx, and then combined with hats from Andalusia and bras worn over clothes from African tribes, women. You know, this is a collage which McLaren was so good at. And without that thinking and without that execution, um, they wouldn't, that collection in particular and his work with Westwood in general would not have been as elevated as it is now. And while they're running the shop as sex in their third incarnation, producing all these S&M clothes, it was in that time period, if I'm not mistaken, that he's starting to form Sex Pistols. Yeah, he'd had a brief association, I think five months. He'd lived in New York and America, uh, helping out and managing the New York Dolls, the kind of outrageous proto-glam punk trash uh, band that um, had fallen on hard times and he was such a fan he went to New York and became their de facto manager organizing a tour it couldn't last that's for another time that story but they fell to bits but he came back from that really encouraged by a kind of re-engagement with popular music he hadn't really had since the 60s and so talking to these young kids who were hanging out at sex his shop uh, he realized that, you know, they had ambitions to form a band. And here was a way in which he could, again, shake things up. Um, and eventually he signed them to, for a pretty big record deal to EMI. And he says in my book that he was kind of patronized by the record company people at the time because it's like, what do you know? You know, you operate a fashion boutique in the King's Road. And he, he said, I know much more about youth desires than you, mate, because I'm selling them trousers. And, you know, I make more money than you do in a day, you know, than you make in a week out of that business. So I have an understanding of what young people want because it comes to me, it's communicated to me through fashion. I think that's a radical thing to have said at that point, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, and just to draw a connection, he starts dressing Sex Pistols in his clothes because, yeah. again, he keenly understands that the look is as paramount as the music at that point in our visually oriented culture. So lots came from him, like the iconic Tits t-shirt, yeah. which he uncovered at a shop in New Orleans, and it becomes this iconic design that Westwood milks through the years. Yeah, our biggest group at the time were a group which I, uh, I'm not sure your listeners would ever have heard of, but they were called the Bay City Rollers. They were Scottish. They were from Scotland. And they had a very canny manager, later much disgraced, actually. But he um, got a clothing designer to cover their clothes in tartan. So they had tapered, they had these flared trousers with tartan cuffs and they'd have tartan stripes down the side. McLaren was very interested in this, not least because this was an application of tartan and he had a Scottish heritage to his father and he was always interested in tartan. But also he realized that here was a look that could be emulated quite cheaply. 
I mean, I'm old enough to remember girls I went to school with or knew or hung out with adding tartan to their flared trousers because they were basically Rollers fans. And so um, it's not such a – and he did say always that he wanted the Sex Pistols to compete with the basically Rollers in that he wanted them to be in the mainstream but wearing his uncompromising clothes such as the Naked Cowboys T-shirts taken from a Jim French design taken from physique studies on the underground gay circuit of the 60s, which he picked up in Christopher Street in New York, you know, uh, wearing bondage trousers, these these uh, kind of military, sub-military uh, pants, which he strung together with Westwood's technical help uh, through a strap between the knees. So there is this thing that there's that H.P. Uh, Barnum aspect to selling clothes through the band, but there's also that incredibly troublemaking aspect to getting these clothes on what we would call Top of the Pops, you know, our, our major music show of the week. That's a big point because he's always wanted to infiltrate the mainstream in order to promote this anarchy he was championing. Yeah. You know, I keep going back in my mind to this punk fashion exhibit at the Met from a couple of years ago. And my first thought was like, what the hell is punk doing at a museum? Yeah. Like it's like the antithesis of the whole thing. And then my second thought is like, well, actually, maybe that's the most punk thing there is. Yeah. And he probably would have had same thoughts. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the history of fashion design ever since the punk period, which I think we can define as kind of 76, 77, it's its height. Which, so that's a long time ago. You know, how many times a year you know, do we hear of, you know, somebody who's channeling punk in their look? Which major designer can you think of who has never used tartan, mohair, safety pins, zips, leather, you know, any of these things that were part of the, basically the uniform of the dispossessed, which McLaren came up with, with Westwood all those years ago. Exactly. In the recent article I wrote about how fashion has gone from art to entertainment, I put the beginning of contemporary fashion with Vivian Westwood. And then literally the next week, I'm reading in your book about the first Sex Pistols concert in Paris. And tell us who shows up. Oh, yeah. No, that's an amazing event. And it was held in September. So Paris Fashion Week was on at that point, September 1976. And McLaren had always been drawn to France and Paris in particular. Uh, ever since he was a kid, he went there as a 16-year-old to the south of France, and he visited Paris after the May of, Enemont of uh, 1968. And he'd been back and forth. His his great friend was Jean-Charles de Castelbajac, um, who he stayed with. And so when the Sex Pistols are beginning to rise, uh, their short but meteoric career, uh, about a year after they formed, he took them to Paris to launch of a uh, of a club, a relaunch of a club, which had been uh, the interior of which had been uh, done out by Philippe Stark. Um, and uh, there, through uh, Jean-Charles and others in the audience were Karl Lagerfeld, you know, sitting on the floor watching the Sex Pistols perform uh, one of the two shows that they played there. Karl Lagerfeld, Yves Saint Laurent, because this was, he was, he had that thing where this was a fashion event as much as a music event. 
And so John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, was wearing this outrageous new outfit, the bondage suit, the bondage trousers and jacket. And this is where he, McLaren decided to premiere them kind of as an off, you know, pieced fashion show. Um, and there were several Japanese designers who were in town who were there as well. I mean, this was a major event in the calendar, and it kind of shook things up as much as the McLaren Westwood shows, formal shows that shook things up when they held six in Paris between 1981 and 1983. So he's always got a mind to that. He's not thinking like a rock manager. He's thinking about how you make an impact beyond that quite square world of rock music. And Jean-Paul Gaultier was also at that concert, right? Yes, yeah. And you almost immediately start seeing punk references showing up in his work and as he becomes this meteorically rising star in Paris. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's that. Um, I think it's a, it's a spore which creates something that's so easily assimilable in a way. And I think that this is one of uh, McLaren's uh, areas of expertise was to feed an interesting idea which would then proliferate. And it was kind of that DIY thing. He was asked backstage at the, uh, by a Japanese TV crew backstage uh, his 1982, uh, his and Westwood's 1982 show, Punkature, uh, what he thought of punk five years hence, because, you know, 1977 was really the heyday of punk. And he said, you know, the, he was still a punk rocker and the punk applied not to whether you had a safety pin through your nose or played three chords. It applied to you if you were a film director or applied to you if you were a fashion designer, because it was all about DIY, doing it for yourself, and being anti-corporate. And so I think that people such as Gautier could take something from, which is so evident in a Sex Pistols performance in these majestic clothes, in that majestic circumstance, could, could leave that concert, as so many people who saw the Pistols did, and say, I'm going to do it for myself. And that is exactly what attracted other aspiring musicians because they made it look easy. Yeah. Sex yeah. Pistols made it look possible. The, f the first concert in Manchester, because who shows up? It's Peter Hook and Bernard Sumner. Yeah, and Stephen Morrissey and Marky Smith and, you know, Nick Hartwell. And those guys are like, well, if the Sex Pistols can do it, we can do it. And so they go on and to found Joy Division. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, another interesting aspect, I think, of McLaren's career is that he was gender blind and also uh, other communities, whether other minorities, whether gay or trans or people of color, were welcomed in to his adventures. And so one of the aspects of uh, the punk music boom, certainly in Britain, is that there were several artists who came out of that, female artists who came out of that, who were as powerful as the men, whether you think of Susie Sue. And they all controlled their images, you know, fantastically as well. And so Susie Sue or The Slits, um, Polystyrene of X-Ray Specs, Chrissy Hind, who McLaren worked with a lot, who later scored success with The Pretenders. You know, there were just a lot of people that were part of this very inclusive 
stylistic movement. Can we just say how underrated the slits are? As, as, as image makers as well, right, Eugene? I mean, you look at their photographs, they're just extraordinary people. So Sex Pistols go on this tour, <laughs> and then they quickly stop going on tours yes, because McLaren, being their mismanager. <laughs> well, because, um, yeah, well, I mean, he kind of knew that they would, uh, in, in this cause to make trouble, uh, and to make an impact and to grab headlines. They were naturals. He didn't need to tell them what to do. They could just go ahead and do it. And so there's this event when they're interviewed on Tea Time TV. So that's pre-dinner uh, TV, very popular London show, where they swear uh, quite a lot at the, uh, at the drunken presenter. So it's kind of showing the old guard up. They immediately hit the headlines of every single newspaper in this country the next day. They're about to launch a tour and they're banned from 18 of the 22 dates on it. Uh, they become the bet, well, public enemies number one. American TV crews start to arrive here. There's a lot of footage on YouTube, which is really fantastic to watch as well. These kind of archaic news crews trying to get to grips with these youths. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's all over very quickly. Because I think that there is that aspect of McLaren becoming bored and allowing it to get out of control. He fires the, uh, uh, the bass player, Glenn Matlock, who's the major songwriter, in favor of the incredibly charismatic but totally musically inept Sid Vicious. You heard it here first. <laughs> Not first. Well, no, but, but still. So, you know, um, that was doomed to failure. Um, and is told in many documentaries as well. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is not to retell the same old stories. There's an interesting person uh, here called David Harrison, who's a, a very well-accomplished and prominent artist, figurative artist and sculptor. Now, he tried out for the Sex Pistols because McLaren liked his look uh, before Johnny Rotten. So I wanted to tell the Sex Pistols story through those people who've never really been interviewed before, who would also support this idea that actually it was far more of an artistic uh, event than it was just a pure uh, music business event. Which is not what Johnny Rodden and the others wanted, right? I mean, understandably, they wanted careers in music. Well, I get it, you know, because, yeah, they, they did want music careers. I mean, they were dead-end kids, a lot of them. This was going to be their chance. And here was this guy going, hey, let's, not, let's, you know, let's fuck things up. And they're saying, wait a minute, we, we want to get out of the ghetto or the working class estates from which we come and become professional musicians and be paid for it. And so um, obviously their impulse was correct. But he wasn't interested in professionalism. He always said, you know, willful amateurism is the thing. Um, he wanted to be and was in, in his own way a glorious amateur. But um, they wouldn't accept it. And so, you know, their paths have actually had to separate, obviously. Yeah, and one of the headlines, just to make a quick side note for the fashion people that comes out of that incident where they cursed the TV show host is the filth and the fury, which becomes a motto for this cult Japanese brand called Neighborhood. Right, right. Um, you can still see that in huge neon uh, letters in their Harajuku flagship store, which I think is kind of cool. And actually, there is this whole Japanese fashion connection with McLaren and Sex Pistols. Yeah, I mean, th that kind of, as far as I was concerned, that kind of took, started to take place a bit later on when 
I mean, I think the, it's obvious that Ray Karakubo and others took their cue from what was going on at Sex and Seditionaries, the, the, the store that succeeded it. Uh, in terms of their approach to clothing, though obviously they did their own thing. And then in the 80s, there was this enormous influx of of Japanese collectors to Britain. I mean, I remember people telling me stories that they'd be wearing an old sex T-shirt and they'd just sell it to these guys in clubs and walk out shirtless but with 50 quid in their pockets. I believe it. And it goes all the way to the 90s with designers like Jun Takahashi and Hiroshi Fujiwara. Hiroshi, um, yeah, sure. And and so there's this huge um, element today still going on in Japan where they're reproducing the collections that McLaren and Westwood made unlicensed. You can go to sites and you can buy a mohair jumper, a beautifully recreated mohair jumper or bondage pants in various colors or the t-shirts destroy the cowboys. It's still a big business and it's still an area of absolute fascination to the Japanese because I think it's quite enigmatic to them. They don't quite understand it. And I think also it's one of the reasons why it still survives as a reference point today. We don't quite get it, do we? It's too chaotic and maybe it's still too close to it, even though it's that long ago. Oh, absolutely. I agree. And after all, it's a very conservative society. So the impact on Japanese youth must have been enormous. Mm-hmm. And it still goes on today. Like I can't really think of another country where Vivian Westwood still sells today. No, that's right. I think China. So going back to Sex Pistols, McLaren goes on this media manipulation campaign and the record company manipulation schemes that he engages in. Uh And he really inserts himself uh, at the forefront of the band where he's the media figure as much, if not more than the band itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this is part of his kind of art performance, I think. You can see it as such, or you can just see him as him being a big head who wanted to stick his whore in the head of the others. But I mean, he comes up with some fantastic quotes. There's a really funny interview uh, with the Sex Pistols after they'd sworn on Tea Time TV and they're banned by the local council and they're sitting in a hotel room and they're behind him and he's front front and forward. And um, he's got a great mohair jumper uh, around his shoulders, kind of worn Italian style, um, with his shirt collar up. And so it looks kind of insouciant in a way. And um, the interviewer says, a very straight-voiced interviewer says, you know, well, you, you know, there are stories that your, um, your group is sick on stage. And he says, um, he responds and said, well, people are sick and tired of this country telling them what to do. And so it kind of sucks all the air out of the room. And it takes it from a kind of, you know, media frenzy pop story that you get today with any run-of-the-mill pop star into another sphere. Exactly. And again, the political never really left him, right? Never, never. No, he um, he he always said that, you know, for a, a pop culture project to be successful, it had to be sexy, subversive and political. And I think that that's really one of the areas that popular music maybe these days kind of lets us down quite a bit because it's not polit- not particularly political, is it, by, by and large. But I think that other statements are being made by 
really great groups, which, you know, uh, are more the personal political, which I, I think he also he accepted. He wasn't talking about party politics at all. He was talking about, you know, uh, people, particularly from the minorities, the, the people he called the dispossessed, the outsiders that he felt aligned with, that they should be allowed uh, a public platform as big as those who control the media. I agree. And I think a lot of us that, you know, first the political message has shifted be, uh, because during his time it was very much about class division and Marxism. Yeah. And especially in England at the time when class division were so much more pronounced than in America. And I feel like that's gone today. Like no one is having that conversation. Um, like I keep asking, like, where's the rage against the machine of today? And so maybe that changed. And I agree that it's not as aggressive as it was. But there is there is one area, and that's in the area of gender, gender politics and identity. And it's interesting to note that in the mid 80s, when McLaren was working as a film executive in Hollywood, developing a various a variety of projects, one of which he came across was uh, the early days of the documentary Paris is Burning by Jenny Livingston about the New York ballroom scene. Now, he, he saw that that was really taking the conversation forward because this was the lives, the story of the lives of really the literally dispossessed, the people of color, the minorities, both racial and sexual in New York and other cities who were pulling themselves out of the gutter and making glamorous lives for themselves by really adopting the poses, literally, of the, the Vogue set. You know, they had the one of the dances was voguing. And I think the, here's another way in which he's relevant to today is that when he made his album, Walt's Darling, when he released that with the track Deep in Vogue, a year before Madonna did her own uh, uh, take a Vogue, which was obviously a big hit. He was really, he could see that uh, those ideas of class and rich against poor were maybe running down or he talked about them. But here was a new area, identity and gender politics, which would be endlessly fascinating if presented in the right way to mass culture. Do you agree? Yeah, totally. And I think the common strain is the dispossessed and disadvantaged. But before we jump to that, and I do want to address that, and it's funny that Madonna does come across McLaren's horizon a couple of times in your book. Yeah. But uh, so Sex Pistols fall apart after the death of Sid Vicious from overdose at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. Yeah, that's, and, that's how um, you go. <laughs> Johnny Rotten hates McLaren, goes away and forms his own band. McLaren moves away from punk. Right. Not in spirit, but as a music genre. And he goes to Paris and fights this Burundi beat in a music library. And he's uh -huh. so fascinated by it, he believes it's the next big thing in music. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a new rhythm. But the, it's quite funny the way that that came, came about. And again, serendipity has its part to play here. He's researching musical soundtracks for soft porn movies. He's got a gig doing that in Paris. He's fallen in with these dodgy geezers from Marseille. <laughs> and uh, so he doesn't want to use kind of limp classical music recorded in Eastern Europe so it's out of copyright. He gravitates to the ethnic section. And he picks up this album, and one of the tracks on it is an eight-minute track of this Burundi tribe. They're drumming and yelping. It's a fantastic, it's an amazing beat. Once you hear, you hear it once, you're never the same again. 
And so he, he rather fancies the female assistant librarian who's there to play records for the people who want to take them away for a while. She puts it on at 45 rather than 33. So she puts it on at the speed of a single. So she doubles the speed of it. And out of the speakers comes this new beat, completely by an intervention. That's what it would be called in artistic circles. It's actually just a mistake. And he, a light bulb goes above his head and he goes, this is a new beat for popular music. And popular music is in search of new beats at that time. It's 1980. 1979, 1980, you've got hip-hop just about emerging out of New York. You've got electronic music on the rise in Britain and America. Um, and uh, he applies it to some of his clients who come to him and say, hey, look, you had such success with the success to scandal in a lot of cases with the Sex Pistols. I want you to work for me. And so Adam Ant is one of those. He plays in the Burundi beat and says, go away. You know, he, he's paid a thousand pounds for it. He says, go away and, you know, write songs to this. This will make you a star. Of course it does. He's approached by Boy George, George O'Dowd, who's um, on the edges of London's fashion and art scene and club scene. Um, and he forms a band, Culture Club, who use ethnic rhythms. They take their name Sex Gang Children from a film script that McLaren had written. We know what happens to Culture Club. Um his own band, Bow Wow Wow, are less successful, but there's still a worthwhile experiment in making, in reinventing popular music with this tribal rhythm and led by a 14-year-old Burmese uh, female singer, Annabella Lewin. And so they make waves as well. So it's, it's kind of an interesting, again, it's this spore of an idea which he allows to spread or enables to spread as quickly as possible. Right. And from there, he goes back to New York, fascinated with what, what, what uh, goes on in that city. And right. then he does what to me is the essence of his postmodernist thinking by producing this album called Doc Rock. So tell us about uh -huh. that. Yeah. Um, he had an old friend who actually I'm talking to on Friday called Stan Peskett, who a British artist. Uh, came out of the art school scene, moved to New York in 1974, 1975, uh, who had a great big place, uh, you know, one of the kind of early warehouse, pioneering warehouse studios, lofts on um, Canal, um, big space. So he could do whatever he liked there. He could make huge sculptures and sets and scenery. And so he started having parties called the Canal Zone. And he invited local musicians, artists to perform there. At the second one, he's working with this young guy, Michael Holman, out of San Francisco. Um, Michael Holman brings along Fab Five Freddy, who graffitis the walls, bringing graffiti off the street for the first time. Uh, at that party is Jean-Michel Basquiat, who forms Grey with Michael Holman. So in a way, Stan Peskett is one of those guys who's analogous to McLaren, He's come out of the art school scene. He's kind of setting scenes up and allowing people to express themselves and waiting to see what happens out of it. Uh, at one of these parties, McLaren is in town looking for a support act for Bow Wow Wow, who is beginning to get a bit bored with, we have to say, because they're getting a bit pedestrian. They're just asking where the advances are and what hotel rooms they're going to sleep in and can they have a guitar tech and all that yawnsome stuff you have to deal with with musicians. Michael Holman overhears him and says, hey, I'll take you up to the Bronx River Project, where this guy, Africa Bambata, 
is having these parties, the Zulu Nation parties. And so McLaren goes up there with a friend on the Friday night and is introduced to hip hop. So in this place, this hall that's filled with a thousand people way uptown, you know, most cabs wouldn't take them. I think it was a gypsy cab that eventually took them up there uh, and said, hide your money in your socks when you go in. You know, it's, it's kind of scary. Uh, but he sees scratching for the first time and hears it, can't quite work it out. He sees, you know, people spinning on their heads. He sees taggers, uh, graffiti. And so he books them. This, again, this is really adventurous. He books Michael Holman to provide a kind of review of 15 performers, whether they're going to spray can the stage or whether they're going to dance or whether they're going to MC or whether they're going to scratch to be the support act for Bow Wow Wow. And that sets him off in another direction because he sees that this is the future. Bow Wow Wow is basically pop music. It's got that rhythm which he introduced them to. That's fine, but this is two years down the line. He's seen the future, and as you say, he's seen the, the, you know, the postmodernism of what they were doing, using other people's work to create their own work, scratching the monkey's you know, break with, I don't know, something from uh, another artist, Gary Newman, you know, um, to create this new sound. He recognized that as a postmodernist, that this was something that he could explore much further. Yeah, so he has this thought, which is, of course, you know, as one does, I'm going to combine hip hop and square dancing, which is like completely natural thought that would occur to yeah. anyone, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was influenced by one of these ethnic music uh, albums called Dances of the World's People, which presented tons of music from Uruguay to Scotland. Um, and he he was he's offered a chance to work with these uh, hip hop MCs, and he says, "No, I'd rather make my own album about folk music around the world, and hip hop will only be one part of it." I also quite like square dances because you know they're quite attractive and they're childlike. And he finds out because he does his research again that actually they go back to native pagan mating rituals. So these people with their hands behind their back kind of skip past each other. They're kind of getting to know each other. And so, you know, he sees that there are roots in this which are, which are not really told in the sort of nursery rhymes that they're singing. And so um, he, he clashes the two. He goes to Appalachia. He finds this um, these bunch of uh, square dance musicians, the Hilltoppers. He records them brings them back to New York, gives them to the engineer who clashes it with samples and uh, raps from the um, world-famous Supreme Team, these two guys that he'd met via his connections in New York. And he comes up with this extraordinary record, right? I mean, it's an amazing record, isn't it? Buffalo Gals, you know, based on the old Buffalo Gals go around the outside, is born anew as something that is still pretty extraordinary to listen to today, I think. Uh, everyone should go on YouTube and watch the Buffalo Gals video. It's such a trip. And what they're wearing as well, they're wearing the latest collection. I think that's the Nostalgia of Mud collection. So it's got the famous mountain hat, now known as the Buffalo hat, as worn by our friend Pharrell a few years ago and popularized by him. Um, they've got these great sheepskin coats. They've got these printed hoodies, stockings, these fantastic suede shoes. They've got this... Um, you know, makeup which is extraordinary and taken from 
you know, the movies of the time. Um, and so, again, it's a total package. It's a kind of fashion and music package, isn't it? And here I see two common themes uh, going on in McLaren's, you know, in, in McLaren's career. The first, his unwavering belief that genuine culture comes from the street yeah. and not from high up. Absolutely. And it's such an appealing position to me. It is. You know, he's, um, but he's not glorifying the street because he's approaching it through some kind of fine art practice and also this understanding of historical, of art history as well. And so when he uh, casts Annabella Lewin and the other members of um, Bow Wow Wow for an album cover, he gets them to pose in a pastiche of Manet's 1860s painting, Le Déjeuner sur l'Herbe, Picnic in the Park, which has a naked girl. You, you don't see her naked. You know, it's not a pornographic prurient image. She, you can see that she's clearly naked and she's surrounded by clothed men. And so... He's using that. This is a very street culture uh, uh, project that he's dealing with, but he applies a fine art overlay to it. And there is also the sense of childlike wonder in everything uh -huh. he does, which I think any creator should hold on to, because I feel the moment you lose that, like you lose a lot and you, know, you become boring, really. Yeah, everyone wants to be mature, don't they? You know, everyone wants to be, you know, goes to back, back to that to be bad is good because to be good is simply boring, you know. he um, One of his other what we, phrases was be childish, be irresponsible, be everything this society hates. Um, and he didn't say that glibly because I think you're right. He was childlike. He wasn't actually childish, though he was provoking, provoking by saying that. And so he retained that sense of wonder. And I've worked with quite a few visual artists of, of many ages. The, the, the pop artist, Derek Bosher, I edited a, a book about him, a monograph about him a few years ago. He still has that childlike sense of wonder. And that's the thing that gets him, off, him up, uh, as McLaren said, gets the pillow off his face every morning and gets him up and painting. Because if you don't retain that enthusiasm, you become jaded and rather adult, you know? It may sound pompous, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. So I've been revisiting Friedrich Nietzsche, and he says that, you know, a man may go through three stages. Most people are camels, sort of the pack animals that carry the burden of uh, societal rules and authority. So it's basically the masses. And then some of these people have potential to become a lion, which means shedding this burden, this societal burden, to aggressively say no to that burden. Um, but then that's not the end. Then you must become a child <laughs> because if you don't retain that sense of childlike wonder and curiosity, you get stuck being a lion and being in this negative space that doesn't really lead you anywhere. Well, I think, I think because of his dysfunctional upbringing, McLaren understood that in a way it would be quite easy to fall prey to dark thoughts and negativity. And it's surprising, isn't it? Because you think of punk being just fuck you and nothing else. But actually, he was, he was an incredibly positive person. He, gave, he never stopped talking. So he gave tons and tons of interviews. If you put his name into YouTube, you know, you can be there for days. <laughs> yeah. Very rarely... Does he show, and it's not something to do with the public mask, very rarely does he show vengefulness or anger. I think his anger was very suppressed, so it comes out in this constant laughter. Like he punctuates with this kind of maniacal laughter and this gleam in his eye. But he was actually 
uh, quite a positive person uh, right up until the end. And if you look at his performance in the video for the track Soweto from um, uh, Duck Rock, the album which also contains the track we talked about, Buffalo Gals, it was recorded, as it indicates, in Soweto, in the townships, after curfew, when no white man should be there. This was at a time of great division in South Africa. This is well before Paul Simon recorded his album there with musicians. And, you know, McLaren is clearly drunk on palm wine, maybe smoked some reefer, and he's wearing a great white um, nostalgia of mud, uh, double-breasted suit, and he's rolling around in the dust, and he's just joining in and dancing. Somebody, a cynic, a negative person, would never make that video and kind of carry it off without looking too silly. It's a, it's a great moment. So after this project, he decides to pursue a career in filmmaking. Uh -huh. So he goes to Los Angeles without the slightest idea what he's getting into, because no one goes to Los Angeles. Are you kidding me? No. Yeah, I know. I've lived there. You know, I, I agree with you. It's the place where ideas go to die. Exactly. <laughs> Especially ideas like McLaren's, whose first idea is to make a movie about heavy metal surfing Nazis, like as one does naturally, because like... <laughs> What else would you want to make a movie about? <laughs> well, I think this goes to uh, this theory that, you know, he was the eternal and innocent. You or I, maybe much more cynical characters, would say, I mean, I was 30 when I went to Los Angeles and I knew exactly what I was getting into and I had a great time there. But it really is the place where, you know, ideas can't be really be progressed unless you've got the juice. And there are about four people who've got the juice there. And that changes all the time. Well, there's about three of them who've really got the juice all the time. But so he goes there with this kind of naive enthusiasm for these projects, one of which was this uh, film he entitled Heavy Metal Surfing Nazis. Now, that, that film is not going to be made in Los Angeles, let alone anywhere else in the world. But the fact is that he believed, having researched it again, he believed that surf culture was California's contribution to popular culture. Just as much as we in Britain came up with the Teddy Boys or the Skinheads or the Mods, the surfers were really an expression of pure Californian culture. And I think if you look at the careers of somebody like Sean Stussy, who worked with McLaren quite a bit later on, I think there's a case for that. If you look at, and you'll, you'll know far better than me, if you look at how casual wear and sportswear, whatever you want to call that stuff, developed. A lot of it came from surfwear. There's a great label in Australia, my wife's Australian, Mambo, which was massively important here in uh, the late 80s, you know, uh, coinciding with Acid House. But he saw that then, but decides to make a film about it, which is set in the future when environmentally the beaches have been damaged. And these surf Nazis, which was a phrase, if you protected your wave, or your pitch, or whatever it's called, I'm not a surfer, you're part of the beach, you were called a surf Nazi. And so it was the idea of pitch gang battles. It's kind of a classic, you know, rebel without a cause, really, with beachwear. Um, but it wasn't going to fly, was it? Yeah, it's Mad Max for the beach. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm sure, I'm sure that that was an element. There's a great photo shoot, actually, that Annie Leibovitz did, uh, one of which is a photograph of uh, McLaren and a surfer uh, who's painted blue. I think he's supposed to look like the hero of surfing Nazis, must I? Um, 
heavy metal surfing Nazis, I must say. That's the wrong title. Um, and it's a great fashion shoot, really, and it's very prescient as to what happened, certainly in terms of what we all wore and maybe still wear. I agree that I agree there. A lot of good stuff comes out with friendly competition with like Stussy in LA and Supreme setting up shop in New York. Well we know what you know why Supreme is called Supreme, right? Oh by the way, you should say it and not me because I learned it from your book and it's a great piece of information everyone should know how Supreme's name came about. Well, Supreme uh, is called Supreme because it comes from the world's famous Supreme team, who were the duo, the, uh, basically the narrator, the narrators and adventurers on McLaren's 1983 album, Dark Rock. And James Jebbio, uh, as many people were growing up, was very, very impressed with Dark Rock. And of course, he got to work with McLaren. They collaborated on a Dark Rock collection in 2008. And it was at that point that he told McLaren that he called Supreme, Supreme because of McLaren. You heard it here first, kids. <laughs> so let's forward a bit. You know, let's talk about how prescient uh, McLaren was throughout his career, except that six years in Los Angeles when nothing happens, except the relationship with the actress Lauren Hutton. And then he just gets fed up with the whole thing and goes back to London, or was it yeah. Paris? Both. Both really, because he was with his partner who was living in Paris. He was based in London, but he was moving between the two, which he really kind of did for the rest of his life, and New York as well. Uh, so he gravitated. These are the three kind of high points. And he says about Los Angeles, I mean, I think he, he'd agree with both of us. You know, He says that you know everything closes at 10, 30, 11 o'clock because everyone's got to be out to be on set or, I don't know, to sell coffee to them or move the truck around or whatever and so he would go to new york like a camel looking for an oasis he would go to new york at the weekends and so yeah those six years were ultimately i think he felt wasted uh he met orson wells within uh, a few months of moving to los angeles and orson wells said i came here when i was 26 and they showed me a very nice chair i sat down in it and when i got up i was 63 go home <laughs> but but it's kind of what happens to him you know he's given this comfortable life in LA yeah. he's given a house and an office yeah. and a secretary and a bunch of money you don't need to bother there's nothing to fight for so he goes back and he goes through some rough time you know there's the lawsuit that Johnny Rotten uh files about Sex Pistols intellectual property which he wins I think um and at the same time McLaren has a big falling out with Vivian Westwood, who's trying to write him out of history. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the, that was a rough time for him. He'd also experienced this um, uh, very jarring event where he's met his father for the first time in 42 years. His father had left when he was 22 months old, and he was really seeking him out. He'd had therapy in Los Angeles, of course, it's de rigueur. You have to have therapy. And, you know, the therapist uh, said, uh, not a very perceptive thing, I don't think, he said, you know, you better track down your father and find out what happened to him. And so he meets his father. I think he went through something of a crisis around that. But I think it made him a much more reflective person. And I think it was beneficial to him. And he becomes involved in various activities you can see that he's constantly trying out new ideas and so he recreates uh the best of the westwood mclaren clothing from the 70s in a new label born dead in england 
which is a really great, and it was sold only in uh, Japan, of course, because that's where people really wanted it. Um, in 1995, there's an interview with him where he's talking about the fact that the internet is the future. I mean, this isn't, it isn't, in pop culture time terms, I think this is pr- quite prophetic because he said, one day you won't be paying for music. You'll just be getting it down the line. You know, he's talking about all of that business of streaming films four or five years before it really starts to take effect. And so he's looked to constantly all the time as somebody with his finger on the pulse, even if he's not creating. He makes a movie about uh, for British TV about his um, the place he loves, Oxford Street, which is this fantastic commercial zone, which also has a radical political history. And then in 2000, he uh, launches a bid to become mayor of London with this fantastic manifesto, which is very funny and troublemaking. Uh, the best, I think, uh, point in the manifesto is that he suggests that libraries should be licensed to serve alcohol. So you could sip your Guinness while you read your Dickens. I couldn't agree more. It's a great idea. This is a, this is a preeminently sensible idea, right? You, yeah, absolutely. We do it at home. Yeah, exactly. He's, con- he's constantly involved in fashion as well. You know, he called himself the ultimate fashion victim. Um, and so he follows Tom Brown. Uh, he follows uh, Margiela. Uh, he talks a lot in the book, doesn't he, about the various – you can sell, you can tell that he's keeping his eye in all the time. And James Truman of Condé Nast, the then of Condé Nast, says that, you know, he'd go to Paris for the shows and McLaren would come with him and just be – just be Malcolm McLaren and he'd be sat on the front row. And so he's constantly in touch. You know, uh, I've talked to quite a lot of those people who have enormous admiration for him still. You know, Mark Jacobs, of course – um, he formed an association with way back in the 80s. Um, and so you get this sense that he's becoming an ominous grease, really, of the scene of both music and fashion. He's giving lecture tours. And the great thing for me is that in the noughties, as well as producing a few films, he starts to make visual art formally again. You can see that he's becoming what we would understand as a formal visual artist. He makes these film installations, which are basically collages. Actually, basically collages make them sound bad. They are based on collage work. Um, and they're shown at Art Basel. They're collected by uh, big international collectors. And so he's finally found his feet as a visual artist again after a few years of kind of checking out various different areas. Uh, then we get to this point in his life that I find like, quite disheartening and the last stage of his life where he talks about this disillusionment with contemporary culture where he uh talks about what he calls karaoke culture and the death of authenticity yeah now we'll just read out a couple of quotes which i found uh so heartbreaking he says quote we live in a karaoke culture simple clean fun for the millennial family You can't fail in a karaoke world. It's life by proxy, liberated in hindsight. And then he talks about death of authenticity, which which I keep harping on, though no one quite wants to hear it. So it was gratifying to see McLaren talk about the same thing. But he says that authenticity is the antithesis of karaoke culture. He says, quote, 
Authenticity believes in the messy process of creativity. It's unpopular and out of fashion. It worships failure, regarding, regarding it as a romantic and noble pursuit. Better to be a flamboyant failure than any kind of benign success, end quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's there, isn't it? That's, that's really his philosophy. And you apply that to his life, and it's pretty consistent, isn't it? Yeah, and it hits so hard for me, and I... No, though we live in such an are with live in such an ersatz world today, specifically in fashion, mm. I feel like the last genuine space in our culture is sports. It's like the last place you can't really fake it. You know, you can't fake athleticism, except doping, I guess. Mm -hmm. But everywhere else, especially in fashion, you can. You know, it's like McLaren says: you wake up one day, lip syncing George Michael, and you are George Michael. You know, and this good, clean fun is something he absolutely hated. And he talks about sterility, and I will quote again because it's just yeah. too good. Yeah. We live in a world where everybody is an expert, and those young experts have caused the demise of pop culture. The marriage of sex and pop music, its DNA, so to speak, has been considered overrated for some time by this generation. Talent shows and how to get rich and famous for doing nothing culture is what counts now. Nobody truly young hangs out anymore. Pop music mattered once because it was about just that. Hanging out, wishing, wanting, imagining, preparing for sex, and more than likely never getting any. End quote. <laughs> and, you know, he says this way before the Kim Kardashian era. He saw this whole thing coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that one of the aspects of our contemporary culture, which he predicted and worried about and gnawed away at him, was expressed in his mayoral campaign, where he talked about, you know, the proliferation of coffee shops. Again, this is this, these were, weren't fabulous insights, but the way in which he stitched them into his worldview, I think, is the fascinating thing here. In a way, he was predicting the way in which we'd be owned by Google and Facebook and or Facebook into slash Instagram by these by these giant corporations, which are pretty faceless, which are pretty hip, you know, which have these overlays of, you know, seeming as though they're knowing about the avant-garde and the interesting, whereas in fact what they are is bland fora for the exchange of really quite limited ideas, I believe, and I don't wish—I don't wish to sound overly negative about that. This is the reality we have to deal with, and I think it's the same there. That he said also that there was a way of achieving some kind of authenticity in the karaoke world. You just had to really consider how you went about it. Yeah, yeah, and I just thought it's such a fin de siècle moment. Actually, I just realized that McLaren died the year Instagram was born. <laughs> he even went out at the right time. He's like, goodbye, I had a good run, I had enough. But I, but I think one of the great things about him, like, like most, you know, I would posit great artists, you know, because he was a new type of artist, as uh, one of the curators in the book mentions, is that his ideas live on. Uh, you know, and these ideas are actually quite locatable. We can see that, you know, punk really stands for against the grain energy. Um, and uh, if it means Pussy Riot, to use a slightly out-of-date example, though they're still very active, they really took 
that punk attitude of do-it-yourself and anti-corporatism and chaotic politics to the steps of the Kremlin. Uh, and they wouldn't have expressed themselves in that way without, I believe, McLaren. Absolutely. And I do think punk will go on forever. And the large aspect of it is the visual language that McLaren created or was so central to creating. Uh, and that language has outlived the music and will probably continue to outlive, outlive the music and will be inevitably returned to because it was such a powerful statement. Well, as a, as a sort of final thing for you, really, I mean, I'd like to ask you a question because I think here in, in London, which is a fairly small town in many ways, we, we constantly have new fashion designers who are coming up who you can see they're not they're channeling his spirit you know they're not ripping him off in any way but they're living through his ideas and i think that's probably an easier thing for them to do because they're in london are there any designers in america you know that uh, you can see are part of the lineage that goes back to mclaren what mclaren started i don't know if today but maybe in the roundabout way with McLaren helping bring awareness to, you know, ballroom culture, voguing culture. You can see those influences in brands like Hood by Air and Telfar. I mean, really talk about disadvantaged kids coming up on top. I mean, like young, black, gay, transgender kids from poor families. It doesn't get harder than that. But outside of that, not so much. And again, my disillusionment with the current pop culture is the rush to sell out. Like for a minute, I was excited by the SoundCloud rap scene and then just got co-opted so quickly and just folded into the mainstream. Yeah, things get, things get jumped on so quickly. I, I would suggest there's one area where maybe his spirit is invoked. And that was one of the reasons he split with Westwood over their fashion collections was he didn't see why they should show every six months. It was only two a year then, you know, because probably 22 now, isn't it, for most of the people. So he didn't see why you should show twice a year if you didn't have any ideas. And so this was, she wanted to become and was well on her way to becoming a formal fashion designer and part of that world. Now, a few years ago here, I began to see really encouraging signs of that dismantling. Because, um, you know what, I'm really glad that we haven't mentioned the word disruptor here. You know, it's really good, isn't it? But I think we've got to pat ourselves on the back for that, if nothing else. But I saw signs here a few years ago. We had a young designer out of art school, uh, an artist, Claire Barrow, and she decided not to show. It caused such a fuss. It's ridiculous. Why should you show when you don't have the ideas? She wanted to show in a different way. I think she had an art exhibition. So I'm hoping that those kind of ideas about not thinking in a de rigueur way about fashion, because after all, it's only fashion, will really kick in now. Do you, th do you hope so? There are here and there, and my hope is that it does happen and that there will be enough independent fashion scene to counter the luxury giants that have also been co-opting talent at a rapid rate. Yeah, I don't see anything punk about those people working for them because it's neither DIY or anti-corporate. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's the most unpunk thing I can think of you know, existing. No, name, no names mentioned, of course, Eugene. <laughs> well, we don't rely on advertising, so we can name some names. But yeah, I'm very optimistic while expressing perennial pessimism. <laughs> so I do hope for the best. And anyway, shall we end on this note? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, because I think you've got enough there, haven't you? I don't want to. I think it's been a phenomenal conversation. So everyone, Life and Times of Malcolm McLaren by Paul Gorman, available now in an independent bookstore near you or the worst case scenario on Amazon. But we do encourage you to support your independent bookstores, um, even if you don't save a few dollars. The book is just 750 pages of fun and there is so much more in the book than we covered. And really, McLaren was such a prescient figure that he remains relevant in 2020. Thank you, Paul, for being here and taking the time to talk about it. Thanks, mate. Bye. Speak to you soon. You've been listening to the Styles Like Guys podcast, hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc, intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave, Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Thank you for listening.